Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents or other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. So today I'm recording this episode shortly after New Year's, it's early January, and although I'm not a fan of making long lists of ambitious resolutions, I do think this is a wonderful time to reflect back on the previous year and also to reflect on the coming year and on the state of one's life and what's important to one, and then to perhaps set some intentions for how we'd like to improve something about our life. So in this episode, I'm going to share a list of 10 things for you to consider doing this year for better health while aging. Now, there's lots that you could do to optimize health and well-being if you're in your 60s or older, or if you're helping an older adult with their health care. And what's best for you to do really depends a bit on your circumstances and your priorities and what's going on in your health and life that's most affecting your quality of life and well-being. But I did come up with a top 10 list, as it were, at the beginning of 2017. That was a year ago. And I still think those 10 things are good for most older people to consider. So I'll share a link to that article in the show notes, and I'll cover what's in the list in this episode. And these are 10 things that I think are especially high value in that you're likely to get a lot of benefit from them and uh, for the effort that you put in, and also relevant to most older people. So let me get started sharing these with you. Now, I do have them numbered, but that's not in any particular order of importance. Okay, so first suggestion for you is commit to doing exercises that build up lower leg strength and balance for fall prevention. Now, falls aren't an issue or concern for every older person, but they are an issue for a lot of older people. And whether or not you've been concerned about falls, it's important to realize that one of the key factors in helping older people maintain their mobility and reduce their fall risk is to maintain specifically strength in those lower, uh, in those leg muscles and also to uh, maintain balance. And one very good way to do that is to do exercises that specifically practice that. And so we had on episode 52, our geriatric physical therapy colleague, Dr. Tiffany Schubert, telling us just how important that is and to realize that not all forms of exercise will help the body practice this. And in fact, the older you get, the more important it is to be really deliberate and purposeful in doing these types of exercises. So if you want to learn more about what kind of exercises will actually build up the leg strength and balance, you can go and listen to that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. Very briefly, it can either be certain physical therapy or gym exercises that really are in a way resistance exercises, exercises that work the muscle. 
and then various balance exercises. And if you want to do a form of activity that tends to combine both, Tai Chi is very good at exercising both. Otherwise, there are other activities that tend to help people with balance, like ballroom dancing, or probably yoga, as long as you're not doing positions that are too difficult or strenuous for your ability levels. If you've been wondering if your strength and balance are okay, in the related article, I have a link to some of the simple assessment tests that physical therapists usually use. They are the timed up and go, the 30-second chair rise, and the four-stage balance test, and you can ask your doctor to help assess you with those. Now for suggestion number two. My second suggestion is to assess how much you walk and then consider trying to walk more. Now, in that other podcast episode on maintaining mobility, we talked with Tiffany Schubert about the fact that walking is usually not enough to maintain leg strength. It just doesn't make your leg muscles work enough to really maintain the power that they need to help minimize your risk of fall prevention. But that's not to say that walking isn't worthwhile. It's actually a wonderful form of physical activity. It's quite doable. And especially if you get outside, you expose yourself to nature or to your neighborhood, which can be a nice way to get some social interactions. You can also socialize while walking by going for walks with other people or walking over to visit other people. So Unless you're already walking for a half hour to an hour every day, I would encourage you to assess how much you're walking and then see if maybe you can walk more. So nowadays, there are lots of easy ways to figure out how many steps you take every day. You can get a basic pedometer, but also smartphones often have an integrated step counter, or you can get a little bracelet like a Fitbit or something similar. And... Research has shown that walking 6,000 or more steps per day is associated with less arthritis. And then if you're already doing 6,000 steps a day, you can perhaps aim to get up to 10,000 or more. Now, if you're already walking a ton, then perhaps you can think about addressing some other aspect of exercise. In general, it's good for older adults to make sure they're addressing four forms of exercise, which are strength, endurance, balance, and flexibility. So if you're already a walking champion, then you can think about addressing one of those. And if you're finding yourself limited in your walking due to pain or shortness of breath, first of all, you want to make sure to have brought this up with your doctors to see if you've been evaluated for the cause and if it's something that can be treated. And then the other thing is if your pain is due to arthritis, or sometimes people have some chronic shortness of breath, because of a condition such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, it seems paradoxical, but often getting regular exercise and activity does help improve some of those symptoms. And so the trick is just kind of getting over the initial hump. And that can be more easily done if a doctor helps you evaluate whatever symptom you're having that seems to be limiting your ability to exercise and then helps figure out some way to manage the symptom or make it a little bit less bothersome so that you can do that activity because regular physical activity, whether it's walking or otherwise, is without a doubt one of the most wonderful things that we all can be doing for our bodies and is especially helpful as people get older. So now next suggestion, number three. My third suggestion for you to consider this year is 
to make a commitment to protect your brain and your balance for that matter by avoiding medications that are known to dampen brain function. So brain health is a topic of perennial interest to older people and for good reason. And you'll find lots of suggestions about how to take care of your brain. But what they're often missing is something that was actually one of the top three actions recommended by the National Academy of Medicine when they issued their report on cognitive aging and preserving one's brain function. And that is to pay attention to medications because we do know that medications will dampen your brain function in the short term, some of them. And in a moment, I'll review with you what are the types of medications to look out for. And then some of them have also been potentially associated with longer term cognitive impairments. So with a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's or another dementia down the line, or perhaps accelerating that um, cognitive decline. And there's a double benefit in identifying and trying to minimize these medications that are bad for brain function. And that's that they're also often bad for your balance. Most of them are associated also with an increased risk of falls. So when you identify them and find a way to to stop them, often they have to be tapered, so lowered a little bit at a time, or at least minimize them, you're probably doing something that will help you be more alert and present and able in the short term, that is probably protecting your brain health in the longer term, and that may be reducing your fall risk. And if you or somebody you know has been diagnosed with a memory problem or some kind of condition like Alzheimer's, then it's even more important to identify and minimize these medications because people whose brains have already suffered some damage especially need to to maximize their brain function so that they can be their best. So in the show notes, I'll share a link to my article on four types of medication to avoid if you're worried about memory. So you can read about those types of medication in detail there. But briefly, the medications to look out for are one, benzodiazepine uh, sedatives tranquilizers. So these are the, the medications that are often prescribed either for insomnia or for anxiety. And some commonly prescribed ones would be uh, lorazepam, brand name Ativan, um, or sometimes alprazolam, brand name Xanax or sometimes diazepam, brand name Valium, and there are others. So we have talked about these medications before on the podcast, and when we had the episode on deprescribing with Dr. Kara Tannenbaum, which was episode 46, this was one of her sort of uh, key types of medications that she worked on deprescribing. They are habit-forming, which is a good reason to try to not start taking them, but that means they can be hard to stop. But Dr. Tannenbaum did develop a brochure that was shown to help older adults stop in part because it, one, spells out the risks, two, spells out other ways to address um, sleeping problems, and then three, very importantly, spells out a tapering schedule to make it easier for an older person to work with his or her doctor on slowly lowering the dose of this medication so that it can be stopped safely and in a way that doesn't cause too many rebound symptoms. So that's one type of medication to definitely look out for. Another type would be the non-benzodiazepine sedatives. Probably the best known of these is Zolpidem, brand name Ambien. So basically medications to help you sleep, most of them diminish your brain function and increase your fall risk. So you really want to use them quite judiciously. So if you've been taking something like Ambien, 
think about how you might be able to taper off that and find other ways to manage any sleep issues that you have. And if you need suggestions on proven ways to help older adults sleep, there's an article on that on the website as well. Third type of medication to look out for is anticholinergics. So that's that broad class of medications that keep acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter that works in the brain and also elsewhere in the body to help your nerve cells talk to each other. Lots and lots of medications that are commonly used by older people, uh, including lots of over-the-counter medications, are quite anticholinergic. And a common one to look out for would be Benadryl, generic name diphenhydramine, uh, which is often included in a lot of over-the-counter sleep aids. So it's included in things like Tylenol PM or Advil PM. There are lots of other anticholinergic medications that are commonly taken, and you can find a list of them in the article on the four types of medications to look out for. And then the last class of medication would be antipsychotics and mood stabilizers. These are especially given to older adults to manage difficult behaviors related to Alzheimer's and other dementias. And then in a minority of people, they're prescribed for serious mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. Now, for all these medications that are risky for your brain and for your balance, you want to, again, think about that whole benefits and burdens idea that I talked about in a recent episode, which was episode 54. People sometimes think that I'm categorically saying, you know, no older person should ever take these medications. And that's not really what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that these medications are risky, often riskier than people realize. And so you want to make sure that the benefit that you're getting from them is worth that risk that you've looked into alternatives. Because often in geriatrics, when we review medications with people and talk about why one of these risky medications was prescribed, we find that there are other ways to manage the issue. So for instance, antipsychotics to manage difficult behaviors for people with dementia. I have an article on that on the site that explains the process we would take. Those medications are essentially chemical restraints and they should be used as a last resort after lots of other things have been tried to understand why an older person with dementia might be acting out and to find other ways to prevent the behavior or manage it. So I guess another way to think about this third suggestion is you know, to protect your brain and balance by only using these medications if you're quite sure that the benefits are worth the risks and that you've considered other alternatives. Let me now move on to suggestion number four, which is actually related. Although those medications that are risky for brain function are especially useful to identify and try to minimize, my fourth suggestion would be to review all medications this year and try to identify those that might be potentially inappropriate or unnecessary. And that's because we know that older adults in general are prescribed lots of medications and that taking those medications is a hassle, is burdensome, can be costly depending on your drug plan. And also it turns out that when those medications are reviewed by experts, many of them aren't strictly necessary. Unfortunately, taking so many medications does put older adults at risk for side effects and interactions. And according to the Center for Disease Control, every year, 177,000 older adults visit the emergency room due to medication problems. So you can help yourself or 
an older relative by being proactive about asking for your medications to be reviewed. If you want a little help doing this, I spell out a five-step process that you can use to kind of prepare for a medication review with a doctor or pharmacist to ensure that you're likely to get everything carefully reviewed and that you're likely to understand why you're on the medications that you're on and that you're likely to get help reassessing whether you really need to continue each one. So in short, review your medications to make sure that you're only on the ones that are likely to help you, that you're not on medications that are likely to be harmful. So next suggestion, number five. My fifth suggestion is to start or update, depending on where you're at, your own personal health record. So what is a personal health record? A personal health record basically means that you keep your own copies of your own essential health information in whatever format is convenient for you. So you can have a paper file folder at home where you're putting in papers, or you can keep digital copies on your computer, or there are a number of special services that you can use as well. And what kind of health information should you be keeping? Probably what is most important to keep is results from any blood work or laboratory testing that you do, results of any x-rays, scans, MRIs, results of other procedures. That's very, very helpful. And after that, I would say it's also helpful if you're able to, to get discharge summaries after hospitalizations. So why do you need to have this? I'll share a link in the show notes about the benefits of keeping a personal health record. But basically having this key information yourself means that one, if there's an emergency, you'll be able to bring it to uh, the doctors who are taking care of you. Also comes in handy if you ever have to move to live in a new place, you'll have all this important information to give to your new primary care doctor. And that is hugely helpful. And then having this information also means that if you ever need to get a second opinion or if you want to be researching your health condition and understanding a little bit better where you're at and trying to make sure you've identified the questions to ask your doctor. And honestly, I think this is a good idea because we know that often people aren't getting the quite right ideal healthcare from their providers unless they ask. And that's because providers are busy and things fall through the cracks. So if you have that information yourself, you're in a position to do a little research and better understand or get help from another provider. Or what happens a lot in my family is that people that are in my family or friends I know will mention to me some kind of health problem, but they won't have any of this basic information there so that we can take a look at it together and I can provide them for a few suggestions. So if you're someone who does have a doctor or a nurse or another health professional in the family, when you keep copies of your own information, that means you'll be able to get some insights from your family member more easily. So if you don't already have this personal record for yourself, then I encourage you to decide to start it and you can ask your doctor for your lab and radiology results for the past two years. That would be a good start. If you've already started it, that's great. Just make sure that you've collected information that came up over the past year and that you're keeping it up to date. So now suggestion number six. My sixth suggestion is that if you're on medication for high blood pressure, then I encourage you to get a home blood pressure monitor if you don't already have one and to check your blood pressure at least once a month. 
Why is this helpful? Well, so first of all, high blood pressure is a very common condition and it's often not optimally managed among older people. But also you may have heard earlier this fall that there were the new blood pressure guidelines and the experts in cardiology and high blood pressure are actually sort of suggesting lower goals for people to have. Now, I wrote an article about it. I haven't yet done a podcast episode on the latest round of blood pressure guidelines. But the most important thing to know about these guidelines is that it is crucial to get a good measurement of what your blood pressure usually is in order to be able to sensibly manage blood pressure. And so the latest round of guidelines that was issued this past November was heavily influenced by the SPRINT blood pressure trial in older adults. And the thing about SPRINT was that they measured blood pressure in a way that is very different than the way the average person gets their blood pressure measured. They basically had people come in, sit quietly for five minutes, and then they measured their blood pressure three times and averaged it. Now, your doctor in the office is probably not going to do that, but what research shows is that home blood pressure measurements, especially if you take a few of them, a few of them meaning not just three in a row at a single sitting, but if you took it sort of every day at the same time, three days in a row, that that's often much more accurate and reflective of what a person's blood pressure really is than the usual office-based measurement, which is often taken when people are in a rush and the person may not be in the right position. And there may be sort of other reasons for which it's sort of not good technique the way that they took it. Now, is it important to have your blood pressure correctly measured? Well, I would argue that it is because if it's not, you may be given more medication than you need for your blood pressure. And that could potentially cause lightheadedness or dizziness when you stand up and potentially falls. Or maybe you're not getting enough blood pressure medication. And so you're missing an opportunity to reduce your risk for what we call cardiovascular events, basically heart attacks and strokes. So if you're on medication for high blood pressure and you haven't already gotten in the habit of using a home blood pressure monitor, I encourage you to do it this year. And in the article with these 10 suggestions, there'll be a link to more resources on how to choose a monitor if you don't already have one and how to work closely with your doctor to make sure that, that your blood pressure is being managed in a way that is reasonable for you and helps you reach your health goals. So next suggestion, number seven. My seventh suggestion is to address or review your advanced planning for health care. I can't tell you how many people, when I ask them about this, say, oh, yes, yes, I did that with a lawyer 5, 10, 15 years ago. Well, that's probably not good enough. People's preferences for their health planning change as their health situation evolves. And it's really supposed to be something that one reviews regularly, especially if there have been any changes in health circumstances or in life circumstances. So if you've never done it, at a minimum, you wanna have thought about who would make medical decisions for you if you were sick or unable to make decisions. And bear in mind that among older adults, when they're hospitalized, studies have shown that at least half of them will at least temporarily lose the ability to make their medical decisions because they're sick or because they develop that confusion that's very common in the hospital, delirium. And then a certain number of people also just 
um, slowly and permanently lose their ability to make medical decisions because they develop a chronic problem with memory or thinking. So at a minimum, you want to have thought about uh, who will make those decisions on my behalf. You want to have told the person <laughs> that that you're designating them for that purpose. Some people don't tell their family member. And you want to regularly talk about what your preferences would be. And in the article, I have some additional resources that can help you with that process if it's not something that you've ever done or if you haven't reviewed it in the past few years. My eighth suggestion, uh, somewhat related, is to address or review your advanced planning for finances. So here, the issue is to make sure that you've done the thinking and also the legal paperwork necessary so that if you were injured or sick or otherwise couldn't manage your finances or your legal affairs, who would do this on your behalf? And this is especially important because people don't always realize this, but if you don't have an advanced directive for healthcare and you become very sick, most states will allow your next of kin to make decisions on your behalf. I think just about every state allows that. But what people don't realize is that if you become similarly sick and unable to manage your affairs, states do not allow your next of kin, not even your spouse, to manage your financial affairs. So unless your spouse already had the power to be managing those affairs because they're also on the account or because you previously gave them power of attorney, they cannot manage affairs. And I follow some online communities of family caregivers, and I have to tell you, it's a recurring question. Somebody who writes saying that their loved one had a stroke or is disabled, and now they can't, they can't pay bills or they can't manage this, and isn't there some way to do it? And unfortunately, the answer at that point is usually not, and often those families have to go and get guardianship. So you don't want to end up in that situation you want to make sure if you haven't already done so that you've thought about who could manage your financial affairs and other affairs if you were unable to do so. And then you want to think about completing a durable power of attorney for general affairs, which often covers finances or one specifically for financial affairs. For more on how to address this, I have a link in the article on these 10 suggestions that I have for you for the new year. So now we've covered eight things that are all about your health and planning ahead, and it's probably feeling a bit tiresome. So now we're going to talk about a few fun things that I would recommend that you do in the coming year. So suggestion number nine is to think about how you can socialize more and contribute to the world around you and otherwise do things that are nourishing for the soul and spirit. So there's so much research that has confirmed what many people already know, which is that relationships and contributing to the world are key to maintaining not only a sense of well-being while aging, but they actually really help you maintain your brain function and your physical function. So if if you're retired or not otherwise working, then think about whether you can volunteer or perhaps even sign up for some kind of part-time work. Or if there's a project you've been meaning to do 
Now would be a good time to think about taking on that project and think about how much time you're spending with others. Now, there are some people who really are loners and don't feel the need to spend a lot of time with others. Those people are probably not lonely. We talked about that in the podcast episode with Dr. Carla Parasonoto. That was episode 53. You don't, you don't want to assume that people who are somewhat socially isolated are necessarily feeling lonely. But most people do enjoy the company of others and benefit from it, but maybe finding themselves a little bit isolated or lonely. So if you're feeling that for yourself, make a little effort to find ways to participate in activities or otherwise connect more with others, whether that's with family or friends or just through people who you might connect with by joining some kind of group or activity or volunteer opportunity. And then think about what activities bring you contentment or well-being. It might be something artistic or crafts-like. It might be reading certain types of, of books. I think we all, when we think about it, can think of some activities that just help us feel nourished inside and help us thrive. And so make sure that you're finding time for those if you're quite busy with work or responsibilities. Some people are actually quite busy with caregiving responsibilities. Caring for either an older person or a younger person, make sure you carve out find a way to find some time to do some of those activities because you can't take care of someone else unless you first take care of yourself. And then my last 10th suggestion kind of related to what I was just talking about is to brainstorm a life wish list and then go and do at least one thing on the list. I think we all can get so caught up in just putting one foot in front of the other and doing the things that need to get done or the things that we're used to doing that we can forget to sort of think big and, and dream. And when I wrote this original list of 10 a year ago, I had recently heard this very touching story of Miss Norma, who at age 90 left her longtime home to go road tripping with family. Now, in Miss Norma's case, she had actually been diagnosed with cancer. And it's after she got that diagnosis that she thought to herself she had lived, I think, um, a life that was in some ways a bit circumscribed and she had really stayed in the same place for years and years and years. And she realized that what she really wanted to do was go see the rest of the country. And so her son took her on this uh, road trip and it was just really wonderful and inspiring. And the thing is, you know, I think ideally we wouldn't wait until we were diagnosed with something really serious to do this. Although if you are, it's a good opportunity to think about, you know, the time you have left and how you want to spend it. But even if you're not aware of something that is life-limiting, take that moment to step back and think about your life wish list and pick one of those things and try to see if you can find a way to do it this year. So those are my 10 suggestions for maintaining better health while aging this year. Just to recap them quickly, they were one, make sure you're doing exercises that build up and maintain leg strength and balance for fall prevention. Two, walk a lot and even walk more. If you're not sure that you're walking enough, get a step counter and see where you're at and then try to increase that walking. Three, protect your brain and your balance by avoiding those medications that are known to dampen brain function, especially sedatives and anticholinergics, especially sedatives. Four, organize a time to review all your medications and make sure that they're all still necessary with a doctor or pharmacist. 
and try to focus on identifying those that might be potentially inappropriate or unnecessary or are known to be risky for older adults. Five, start or update your personal health record. So at a minimum, ask for copies of all your lab results and radiology results and set yourself up so that you're able to give those to another doctor if you ever need help from someone else, or so that you're able to research a little bit and learn a little bit about what might be going on with your health or the health of someone you care about. Number six, if you're on medication for high blood pressure, get a home blood pressure monitor, learn to use it, consider checking your blood pressure, I would say at least once a month, if not once a week. And you can also check it more often if your blood pressure medication has recently been changed. Number seven, address or review your advanced planning for healthcare. So that means thinking about who would make decisions about your health if you were temporarily or permanently unable to do so. And then also have, have you done some thinking about what your preferences would be in regards for care? Have you told your designated surrogate about those and then have you written it all down in a document? Number eight, address and review your advanced planning for finances. Specifically, if you haven't already done so, identify someone who could make financial decisions and other decisions on your behalf if you were disabled and make sure to complete some kind of durable power of attorney because if there's not a legal document, the person won't be able to take action on your behalf if you become sick or injured or lose the ability to manage your affairs. Number nine, plan to socialize, contribute to the world around you, and nourish your soul. And then number 10, brainstorm a life wish list, and then go and try to do at least one thing on the list. I wish you all the best for the new year. Thank you for listening to the podcast and being part of the Better Health While Aging community. And before the usual ending kicks in, I just want to make a brief pitch. If you've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it, please leave a rating and review on iTunes because that will help us grow even more in the coming year. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.